Hi, and welcome to Failureology, a podcast about engineering failures. I'm your host, Nicole. And I'm Brian, and we're both from Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Thank you again to our Patreon subscribers. As always, we really, really appreciate your support in helping us produce and make this podcast. This is not easy, and so any help we can get is greatly appreciated. For less than the cost of your hiking snacks or your hiking socks, you can hear us talk about more interesting engineering failures. So, Nicole, what is involved in our Patreon? What do people get for less than the cost of their hiking snacks? You get twice as many episodes. So on the opposite Sundays from when we release our regular episodes, we release our mini failure episodes. And these are odd failures that are either happened a really long time ago or there's not a lot of information available. Some of them, there isn't a lot of information available because it's old. Some of them have simple causes and some of them went into lawsuit. There's a couple that we've covered where they've gone into some type of lawsuit and the details of the failure were never released to the public. And so there's a lot of speculation on what happened and not a lot of information. They're basically anything that we think is interesting that we want to talk about, but that doesn't quite fit the format or the length that we strive for on our regular episodes. We cover on our mini failure episodes. And the cost of that is $5 a month, as Brian mentioned, $5 Canadian. And depending on where your dollars come from, that might be a lot less than $5. Uh, Or it might be more. It depends. But $5 Canadian, and it's not changing. Our Patreon is inflation-proof. And the money that we raise from our Patreon goes to pay for things like hosting fees or web domain fees or new equipment that we may need. We mentioned last time Brian's dog chewed his microphone cord, and so our Patreon covers things like that. So you're helping us make this show possible, which we really appreciate because we like making the show. We want to keep doing it. I uh, I look forward to recording stuff. I record generally about once a week, sometimes twice a week. I always look forward to them. So thank you again for helping us make that happen. So we're going to move on to part two of our motorsport safety episode. Episodes, I guess, as this is part two. I mentioned briefly in part one that I've gone to some NASCAR races. I really like watching racing in general. I watch a lot of NASCAR, kind of build some weekend plans a lot of time around NASCAR. I really like watching NASCAR. I've watched some F1. I watch IndyCar. Um, I'll watch some dirt racing series. One of the things that I love about NASCAR is you have a 36 car field generally. All the cars are very close to each other for most of the race. They can bump into each other. They maintain structural integrity. With F1 racing, I feel sometimes if, you know, two cars just touch very briefly, both those cars wind up spinning out. There's a lot of destruction. The wheels come off. Somebody's race is generally ended just by very light contact. In NASCAR races, whether it's a road course or an oval course, there's a lot of bumping that bumping and banging that happens with these cars. They still keep on driving. It's a fairly aggressive form of driving. I know when some F1 drivers or drivers that are competing in other racing series, they drive NASCAR cars for the first time. Some of them think it will be very straightforward and they'll have a very easy podium or a top five or a top 10 feel very quickly they realize that these are fairly large heavy cars they don't handle super well the drivers are very aggressive they recognize these guys aren't used to the bumping and the banging of nascar cars and nascar racing so they kind of use that to their advantage it's very tiring from what i understand i've never raced in a nascar event It's very physically tiring, physically draining, mentally, um, when you're driving around, you know, 190 miles an hour with, you know, cars within 
you know, less than a foot of you, kind of in the front and to your sides. The littlest error on your part could have disastrous consequences. You can wipe out, you know, 5, 10, 15 cars just by reacting slightly late or, you know, turning just slightly more than what you should. So I realize a lot of people think that it's a lot of just turning left and there's no skill involved in it. I think there's a tremendous amount of skill to be able to handle very heavy stock cars or very heavy cars since a lot of them aren't very stock anymore at 190 miles an hour with cars within a couple feet of you dealing again with draft and and wind and aerodynamic changes. If you've ever driven on the highway, I assume everyone that's listened to this has driven on the highway, been a passenger in a car on a highway. When you stick your hand out the window, that's kind of the same effect that cars that are following other cars have in have in NASCAR. There's there's a lot of wind that's coming off of cars in front of them and beside them. So there's a lot of aerodynamic forces at play. I think it requires a tremendous amount of skill. I really like watching it. It's one of my favorite things to watch. So we've kind of dove into motorsport safety already, but I do want to back up a bit because we've skipped over the engineering news and I'm sure you all want to hear what that is this week. So this week we're going to talk about a balance beam walking robot, which is really cool. So the Robotic Institute at Carnegie Mellon University designed a four-legged robot that can walk on a narrow six centimeter wide balance beam. Using tech designed to control satellites in space, the team was able to improve the robot's balancing abilities. And that's been one of the challenges, at least with early robots, that I think they've overcome now, but getting the robot to walk and lift one or more of its legs off the ground and having the legs that are on the ground be able to support the robot and have it not fall over. That was more challenging than than they thought it was going to be. Humans just do it. There's so many things going on inside of our brain that tell the different parts of our body to do certain things at at a certain time and keeping us kind of centered and balanced. And it's hard to just transition that into a robot. So robots don't have the agility of mammals like us or like many other animals on the planet. And they typically require at least three of their legs on the ground to remain stable. And their legs are also decoupled, so they don't talk to each other. Since we're talking about a car episode, I keep coming back to the thought that the legs being coupled together is kind of like all-wheel drive, where all the wheels talk and work together, and when one wheel slips, the force transfers to another wheel. That's not happening with the robots. It's kind of like two-wheel drive or four-wheel drive, where one wheel can just kind of spin in the mud, and it's stuck, and nothing happens with the other wheels, and you're just stuck there. That's kind of what they're doing now. So this new technology, this new balance beam robot has a flywheel and a motor, and that motor can spin the opposite way to the way the robot is falling, and it counters its balance to prevent it from falling over. And I think we're making leaps and bounds in robot development, and it's only a matter of time before robots are walking upright, and we're using them for all sorts of tasks and then they take over the planet and we regret all of it if you believe what the movies will tell you but if you want to read more about the balance beam robot check out the link on the webpage for this episode at failurology.ca hey hun i'm not sure if you know this or not but balls falls ostrich egg consultants has an exciting business opportunity for an excellent salesperson do you ever feel like you don't have enough excitement in your life Balls Falls Ostrich Egg Consultants has an unlimited time opening on their team where you can make four figures a week. The first three figures are zeros. Don't put your head in the sand. You can be your own hashtag Bostrich Babe. Now, onto this week's engineering failure or 
the engineering thing that we would like to talk about this week. It is the second of a two-part episode on motorsport safety. So as we talked about last time, NASCAR was the inspiration for this series of episodes. I really like watching NASCAR and other racing series. We will briefly talk about some other racing series, kind of innovations, especially around open wheel racing. As I mentioned before, these episodes provide a really, really high level overview of safety features in motorsports. It's certainly not a comprehensive list. It does not list all of the safety features that would take far too long to discuss. So in the last episode, we talked a lot about some of the more famous or well-known crashes or incidents that had occurred in motorsport racing and the things that were done to prevent them from recurring. And we talked about a lot of things that uh, worked to help the driver stay safe. So the one we're going to talk about now, it's called Safer Barriers, and it's part of the racetrack that helps make accidents safer. So Safer Barrier stands for Steel and Foam Energy Reduction Barrier. And we talked about this a lot in the last episode where we talked about different cars innovating over the years, how the older cars were really solid and they didn't absorb any of the accident. So if you got an accident, the person inside the car would have to absorb all the energy. And nowadays we have cars that completely crumple when they get an accident, which you think sucks because now you have to pay all this money to fix your car, but your body is in much better shape after the accident because your car's absorbed a lot of that energy. And helmets have gone through a similar innovation over time as well. And so this safer barrier is constructed of structural steel tubes welded together in a flush mounting and it's strapped in place to the existing concrete walls. So a lot of these tracks that NASCAR races on or other racing series race on, they were constructed in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, they're quite old track and they just have concrete walls around the outside of them. Just like your passenger car hitting a concrete wall, especially at 190 miles an hour, is not a fun experience. So these safer barriers are attached, like Nicole mentioned, to the concrete wall. So they absorb a lot of the energy. They dissipate a lot of the energy through the safety barrier instead of back through the human. Before safer barriers, various tracks, and they still do this, um, they'll have tire barriers or they'll have giant containers of water and sand mixture. So safer barriers on oval track racing, since you can't really put out a ton of tire barriers around an oval track, they fill that role of a, of a tire barrier or water barrels in, in other series. And so in addition to tire and water and sand barrels, there are also styrofoam blocks, gravel traps, guardrails, and earth embankments that are used to create a barrier between the people racing and the people watching. So this saver barrier was developed between 1998 and 2002 by a team of engineers at the Midwest Roadside Safety Facility at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. And the purpose is to absorb and reduce the kinetic energy during the impact of a high-speed crash and lessen injuries to drivers and spectators. So this safer barrier is installed on most of the tracks on IndyCar and NASCAR circuits by 2005. And it needed to be designed to prevent catch and pivot or wrapping scenarios. The nose would basically be trapped against the safer barrier and then the back would like spin around fairly violently. Which would create additional injuries potentially for the driver. So the safer barrier was intended to prevent that from happening. The safer barrier also had to be retrofitted to existing concrete walls at oval tracks. So it had to be something that could be relatively easily adapted to existing barriers so that there was a low cost or pun intended barrier to entry for tracks to install this safer barrier product at their at their racetrack. 
And the safer barrier had to be able to withstand open wheel IndyCar and the heavier NASCAR stock cars so that it could be installed on tracks that were used for different types of races. And it had to be easily repairable after impact so that when an accident did occur, they could replace it. And this is something that I think about when I design, and I, of course, do not design things like the safer barrier. I don't work in motorsport racing. I work primarily in HVAC and plumbing. But I think about how do you service this design? How do you repair this design? Are the parts readily available? Things that are not repairable, not serviceable, don't get fixed or serviced. And you don't want that to happen. You want your design to be functioning for a long time. And so that's something that you need to think about when you're designing a system. And especially this type of system, the safer barrier that's used on At this point, probably hundreds of tracks around the world of differing specs and designs and different materials. This product has to be adaptable to all of those different scenarios. I think that's really important. The easier you can make it to install and repair, the more likely it will be used at all the tracks that it can be used at. And that's what you want. You want a product that people want to install. The other thing too, with motorsports and sports in general, they have a very specific, you know, TV window. So typically sports events, you know, whether it's baseball or football or hockey or motorsports racing, it's about three hours. That's kind of the, I I feel it's like the attention span, the amount of time that people set aside where they're going to watch this sporting event. So if it takes an hour or two hours to replace your barrier, that's part of the sporting event. It can't proceed until the barrier is fixed. You're going to get a lot of people that tune out people won't want to purchase your event for TV. I mean, it's the same thing in, um, you know, the NBA, if the backboard breaks or in hockey, if the glass breaks, it needs to be quickly changed. So that way the game can resume. People are still, um, you know, emotionally involved in the game. So yeah, like Nicole mentioned, it has to be repairable, but at the same time, it also has to provide adequate protection to drivers and spectators and help stuff uh, in the car. The safer barrier was first tested by Robbie McGee in a crash on the first day of practice of the 2002 Indy 500. So that is the season after Dale Earnhardt Sr.'s tragic accident. So originally the safer barriers on the tracks, they were only installed kind of on the the outer surfaces of the track. Now at a lot of tracks, they're installed as well on kind of the inside walls of the track or, you know, on, on one of the walls for pit lane. So the most common way that cars, you know, crash or they wreck in NASCAR, they're just with the way that they're racing around. They typically go to the outside surfaces of the track, just conservation of angular momentum. But sometimes the cars, they'll come across the track or they'll hit the outer wall and then they'll, they'll slide towards the infield side of things. Again, they're still going at a high rate of speed, or if you blow a tire, um, your car will turn into the inside wall sometimes. So having safer barriers on the inside walls also prevents accidents and incidents. On to some other safety features. As Nicole mentioned previously in part one of this series, the cars, they will come and they will get tires changed or other servicing. They'll get fuel added, not in F1. They don't add fuel in F1, but in NASCAR, they fill up the cars with fuel. They change the tires. So when the cars have the servicing done, that that happens on, on pit lane. So this is an area of the track kind of on the, on the inside of the oval racing surface where all of the pit crews are there. So those are the guys that do all the tire changing and do all the refueling. At one point, there was no speed limit for cars going down pit lane. So they would come off the racing surface at 190 miles an hour, and then they could go whatever speed they wanted to go down pit lane. So there's a lot of boxes where the cars get serviced, the pit boxes that are right next to each other. There's people that go over the wall that are standing there. So cars could go flying by really whatever speed they felt was that they wanted to go by. 
NASCAR did implement in 1991 um, a speed limit. It varies track to track in NASCAR after a rear tire changer for Melling Racing was killed in a pit road crash. Again, I look at that now and I wonder how could you not implement a speed on pit row when there's people interacting with cars doing various tasks and these cars are going by 100 plus miles an hour so it varies track to track i believe it's about 45 miles an hour up to 70 miles an hour on the nascar tracks again one of these common things it took a while to implement also for pit crew uh, members since 2002 nascar has required um, anyone going over the wall that they need to wear helmets they got to wear full fire suits they have to wear gloves. The guys that fuel the cars, they have to wear a fire apron. And since 2010, like I mentioned, um, F1 has actually banned fueling of cars during a during a race. They've kind of gone back and forth. I believe it was banned previously in 1984. Then they were allowed to fuel cars for a few years, I think in the early 90s, mid 90s. F1 has just decided that fueling cars is too risky. They don't fuel cars. That's fine. NASCAR does fuel cars. Also, some other, I guess, safety features of pit lane. In NASCAR, you can't push a car more than three pit boxes um, if the engine doesn't start. There are some other restrictions about when your pit crew can go over the wall. You can't start going over the wall till your car is two pit boxes before your pit box. So again, that prevents people from hopping over the wall um, you know, before their car is there, when there's other cars going in and out. I know for F1, their their pit strategy or kind of their their pit box layout or box layout's a little bit different where their crew members will already be positioned in the pit box with tires and the car just goes in the pit members service the car and then the car goes back out nascar you have to wait until your car is basically arrived then you hop over the wall they only change tires on one side at a time um, f1 changes i believe all the tires at the same time nascar you change the right sides first typically and then you run around to the left side of the car you have to carry the jack around to both sides of the car less people over the wall i think it makes it a little bit more of a team sport compared to f1 um where the pit crew is a lot more critical in uh, in making sure that the uh, the driver is successful on track so as we mentioned a couple times before um one of the major impetuses of nascar specifically taking safety more seriously was the death of dale earnhardt senior specifically at the daytona 500 in 2001 this spurred nascar i think to start developing the head and neck restraint system which we'll talk about in a little bit um, as well as really looking at how their cars were designed so originally nascar cars were stock racing cars so literally there would be a car back in the 50s or 60s that you could purchase from a a car dealer you would put a roll cage in it and you could go out and race this car Obviously, the cars now that are involved in, you know, high-level auto racing, you just can't walk into your Ford dealership or your Chevrolet dealership or your F1 car dealership and purchase a car and then just go drive it around the track. There's a lot of safety features that, that are built into these cars. Dale Earnhardt Sr., who was a very well-known race car driver, you know, won multiple championships, was very well regarded. I feel he's one of those names that transcends sports into kind of the general public, you know, a name like Tiger Woods or Michael Jordan, you know, Babe Ruth, where if you don't follow that sport, you still know who that person is. Kind of Dale Earnhardt was kind of in that same realm of, of public recognition. So as I mentioned, NASCAR, um, with the death of Dale Sr., um, they decided to start research on a new car design, which would eventually be known as the Car of Tomorrow. So this car, it debuted in 2007, and it had a number of safety features that have more or less carried through to modern race cars. 
So the left side of the car, they put in a steel plate for better resiliency in crashes. It just prevents any entry into kind of a driver area or um, you know part of the car you know impacting a driver in in a racing incident. They also raised the roof four inches, and they made the car two inches wider for safety at rolls. In some of these rollover incidents, um, just like passenger vehicles, the the roof would collapse a little bit. So by increasing the roof that four inches, it just gives you more more room before the roof comes down and starts to impact the driver's head. They created a stronger, smaller fuel cell for a reduced risk of fires. They made the windows out of Lexan, which is a very strong material that gains its strength from its flexibility. So this was really the first time that NASCAR looked at what was essentially a little bit more than a stock car and made a feature-built race car to protect the drivers and increase the safety of the drivers. So a lot of the, the body that's on the car, it's made to look like a passenger car model back then i believe it was the ford taurus for ford i can't remember what uh, what chevrolet had as a as a car back then it's made to look like a car that you would drive on the street that's just a wrap or a paint job on the car just to make it look the same but it, it doesn't share a lot of features with a with a normal street car so the neck restraint system that Brian just mentioned is called the Hans device, which Hans stands for head and neck support. And it was eventually implemented into F1 and NASCAR, but it started with NASCAR after four drivers were killed on the track since May 2000. And they include Adam Petty, Kenny Irwin, Tony Roper, and Dale Earnhardt Sr. And all of these drivers were killed when their vehicle slammed head on into a retaining wall, which caused a fracture at the base of their skull. And some believe this type of injury is due to the driver's head being left unsecured in the car while his body is strapped securely to the seat. So a very, very extreme form of whiplash, essentially. The risk of severe injury and possibly death prompted six NASCAR drivers to try out a new device called the Han system at the 2001 Daytona 500. And this device was co-developed by Dr. Robert Hubbard, a professional engineer at Michigan State University, as well as his brother-in-law, former IMSA car driver Jim Downing. The hands device uh, is designed to reduce the chance of injury caused by unrestrained movement of the head during crashes. And it's a semi-hard collar made of carbon fiber and Kevlar, and it's held onto the upper body by a harness worn by the drivers. And there's two flexible tethers on the collar that are attached to the helmet to prevent the head from snapping forward or to the side during a wreck. Doctors have said that it's unclear if this device could have saved Earnhardt, but it is believed the device saved the life of championship auto racing teams, uh, or CART driver, in January 2001. While practicing for an upcoming race, Bruno Jaquira spun out of control and slammed into a concrete wall at 200 miles per hour or 322 kilometers per hour. And he was wearing the Hans device and he walked away from the crash without injury. That's essentially what all of these safety devices should allow the drivers to do. Get in these horrific wrecks and be able to walk away. And well, I think it's fair to say, because we talk about this a lot, that these accidents are, of course, preventable. I don't think that auto racing is going to come to an end because of accidents. And so you have to take steps to make those accidents safer for the people inside the vehicles. And one benefit of this is that everything that they learn in NASCAR and F1 and all of these safety things that they put into place, a lot of them are transferable into 
the vehicles that we drive every day, which have also come a long, long way in safety over the years. They're kind of doing some of that R&D for us a little bit. I mean, they're, they're not the same, but I think some of that information that they gather in these safety designs is helpful to daily drivers as well. NASCAR officials have said that NASCAR race cars are different from kart cars, which are the championship auto racing teams, and they're unsure if the device would be as effective for NASCAR drivers. Drivers, including Earnhardt, have complained that the device is too bulky, would restrict movements, and make it difficult for drivers to exit the car in emergencies. Which, to be fair, I hear you, but also keeping your head attached to the rest of your body sounds like a valuable exercise, and maybe we should take steps to do that. Hubbard Downing Inc. said it was producing only three to four of these helmets per day just weeks before the 2001 Daytona 500, but received nearly three dozen orders within hours of Earnhardt's crash. Ford offered to pay for a Hans device for any driver who wants to wear one, which I think is a great move. In October 2001, NASCAR officials mandated the use of an approved head and neck restraint system for all drivers racing in the Winston Cup Series. NASCAR Bush Series, or NASCAR Craftsman Truck Series. So we talked a little bit about kind of NASCAR safety features. Um, I'm going to touch very briefly just on the car that came out last year for NASCAR in the in the 2022 racing season. NASCAR, every I'm going to say every five years or every 10 years, they kind of develop a new, um, a new car. It has updated safety features. They'll change kind of the downforce packages or the braking packages. Just to make the series, you know, either safer or to implement changes, you know, rule changes or to adapt to different tracks. So in 2022, NASCAR did come out with the uh, the next gen car, um, and this car um, they went from a from a five bolt uh, wheel pattern to a single um, locking hub on the cars. The the wheels were a lot bigger, and they went from a 15 inch wheel on the old car, I believe, to an 18 inch wheel now. And then they also made the car a much more modular car. So now it has a, a front clip in the same way kind of that F1 does. So a front clip and a rear clip. They redesigned kind of the internal bathtub structure, the titanium bathtub that goes around the driver. They moved the driver from kind of the left side of the car, like right against the door, to more into the center again, just to give more room. You know, if you have an impact on the left-hand side of the car, more room between the, basically the, the side of the car and, and where the driver's driver's situated. Although there were a lot of safety features implemented in this car um, that NASCAR had looked at over the last 20 years, there were a number of incidents that happened last year that did lead to concussions throughout the season. So Kurt Busch, who's been racing for, I believe, almost 20 years um, in the NASCAR Cup Series, during practice or qualifying at a race, um, his car just kind of turned a little bit, backed into the wall, so kind of the, the rear of the car hit the wall first. He wound up with concussion, concussion symptoms. Um, he actually had to retire partway through last year. So he's currently not racing. Um, there were other drivers that um, had concussions that took them out of the car for you know a number of races. Even though that there are a lot of safety features in NASCAR designed this car, you know, with the best interest of safety in mind, there's always going to be things that they can't account for, or they've over-engineered one part of the car, and unfortunately, that does lead to um, you know damage on other parts of the car, or does lead to drivers being injured. One of the things that I do want to give NASCAR a lot of credit for is that I feel they've done a really good job of owning up to issues and having people, engineers and drivers and designers look at why these cars failed. Um, Every race, there's um, two cars that go back to the research and development center um, just to see if there's any, you know, improvements or, you know, if teams have been 
you know, cutting corners on any features of the car. So I do have to give NASCAR a lot of credit for being very proactive on the safety front. This is an organization that I think is really good at reflecting internally on on what they can improve. They're always looking to improve on the safety of, of their cars and their vehicles. Since Dale Earnhardt died in 2001, um, in the top three series of NASCAR, so the Cup Series, the Xfinity Series, and the Truck Series, there hasn't been a fatality in NASCAR, which I think is a huge testament to the engineering that goes into the cars and also um, is a testament to NASCAR taking safety seriously. So just moving really quickly over to um, kind of open wheel racing, originally open wheel racing cars, they don't have a, have a roof on these cars. That's why they're known as open wheel cars. So the driver with his helmet, you know, kind of feels a lot of the, the impact of, you know, the wind, there's a very tiny windscreen in front, in front of the car, in front of the driver. So it's, it's kind of similar to driving like a, an ATV or a, or a motorcycle, kind of same concept. You're not, you're not enclosed. So F1 um, implemented this halo that's a titanium structure that goes around basically the driver cockpit. That has prevented at least a few decapitations when cars have flipped onto, I mean, it's not a roof since there isn't a roof, but onto the non-wheeled surface of the car or where cars have landed on top of other cars. So this is a very strong titanium structure. It gives rigidity to that area around the driver. I think it's a great idea. I know there's a lot of opposition to it when it was first implemented, just from drivers and from fans, that it wasn't, you know, traditional or it wasn't the way that they'd raced before. It would cause visibility issues. I feel that those issues went away almost immediately when what would have been decapitation events, drivers were walking away from. And I think it's a great feature that uh, that open wheel racing cars have now. So there you have it. Part two of our series on motorsport safety. Over the years, we've raced some cars, we've learned a lot, and hopefully we continue to adapt and improve the safety of motorsport. For photos, sources, and an episode summary from this week's episode, head to failureology.ca. If you're enjoying what you're hearing, please rate, review, and subscribe to Failureology so more people can find us. If you want to chat with us, our Twitter handle is at Failureology. You can email us at thefailureologypodcast at gmail.com. You can connect with us on LinkedIn, or you can message us on our Patreon page. Check out the show notes for links to all of these. Thanks everyone for listening and tune into the next episode where we'll talk about the Surfside condo collapse in Florida, which suffered a catastrophic, which almost seems not enough, a completely catastrophic structural failure two years ago. Bye everyone. Talk soon. <laughs>